Welcome back to The Bulwark Goes to Hollywood. I am Sonny Bunch, culture editor uh, at The Bulwark, and I'm very pleased to be joined again today by Chris McKenna. Chris has uh, been on the show before. We talked about Community, uh, on which he was a co-showrunner with Dan Harmon. Uh, Very exciting. Uh, And today we're going to be talking about his work on the big screen. Chris is one half of the screenwriting team uh, behind the latest round of Spider-Man movies, including the billion-dollar grossing No Way Home, billion two, billion three. Who knows what it's at right now? I, I the Money's racking up like the, the national debt calculator. Uh, fun fact, Spider-Man No Way Home is Sony's biggest hit at the box office ever. But did you know that Chris and his writing partner, Eric Summers, also wrote the second biggest Sony hit of all time, Jumanji Welcome to the Jungle? Indeed, if one looks at the website, the numbers, Chris clocks in as the 12th highest grossing writer of all time at the domestic box office. He has beaten out Christopher Nolan, J.J. Abrams, M. Night Shyamalan. And you're only, uh, Chris, this may be news to you, you're only $14 million behind George Lucas, which means that when you folks listen to this at home, he will likely have passed the creator of Star Wars on that list. Chris, how does it feel to be bigger than Star Wars? I would say, being as petty as I am, it's actually more important that I beat out my writing partner. (laughs) <laughs> That's true. You're actually you, and I, I actually mentioned this to you. You're you're like I think 15 million dollars ahead of him or something like that because of yeah, because I had, Igor Igor isn't that is it was that Igor wasn't that it was an animated movie yeah. called Igor that I think is, somehow uh, upon its release uh, was able to make just enough money to keep me just a nose ahead of uh, that pesky hanger on Eric Summer. So you you are number one at the number one at the Spider Man box office number one in our hearts. Uh, Chris, thanks for being on the show. So let's let's talk uh, about seriously what it's what it is uh, like to work in this world and in the in the world of like kind of Marvel and uh, the Spider Man comics movies et cetera. Because I think it, it's actually a pretty interesting process that you guys that you guys have in terms of working with Marvel and with Sony and trying to figure everything out. When you sat down to break out this story, to break down this story, what was that like? Did you just have a bunch of ideas? You came to them and say, hey, we want to do this, this, and this. Did they come to you and say, hey, we need to get to point A, B, and C, and where you go from there? You mean on No Way Home? Yeah, No Way Home. Uh, Yeah, it was, it came off of Far From Home, obviously, but it came in this weird limbo because... Sony and Marvel did not have a deal to make another movie together. So we were talking with Amy Pascal, who wanted us to write the next one, but there was no deal with Marvel. There was no deal with John Watts. um, And luckily all that got solved by uh, what I've read is a phone call between Tom Holland and Bob Iger. I think Tom Holland was in a pub or something. He's like, come on, just... Come on out. Come on out and have fun. One more time for old time's sake. And uh, things got settled and then we were back in the old room at uh, Marvel. Uh, and uh, typical of me, I do no, like with this interview, I do no prep. And all I had was what I knew, which was, oh man, those last writers really kind of screwed us. They they dropped a giant bomb at the end of this movie. What are they going to do with that? Uh, but actually, it, it's it, it's fun to at least have something to grab onto. So we knew we'd be dealing with the fallout from that. Like oh, we would have to be coming immediately upon the reveal at the end of the at the end of end on credit scene from Far From Home, where 
Quentin Beck via J. Jonah reveals that the true identity of Spider-Man is uh, Peter Parker. Right. So you so you have like a jumping off point there. And then yeah. as you're as you're putting together the rest of the movie, is there uh, is does does Sony come to you and say, hey, we want to do multiverse? Does Marvel come to you and say, hey, we want to use uh, Doctor Strange? Multiverse is definitely air because obviously that's what the other Marvel uh, the phase that they're going through was dealing with. So it was definitely in the air. We originally were talking about, I think it was Kevin's idea that what if we ended this movie with kind of our version of a Sinister Six tag where somehow we see one or more of the characters from one of the old Spider-Man series entering this world. And so that was an idea that was in the air. It would be fun if we could get to that place by a tag. And in exploring this movie story, we went down different roads and we'd get excited about things and for various reasons would uh, be told that we couldn't do that. I don't know if you know this, but there are various other movie projects that are and TV projects that are sharing uh, Marvel or at least Spider-Man characters. Well, you you had mentioned uh, before we started talking that uh, Craven, the hunter, was was somebody who you guys always kick around. That you guys every every some, we always just go to Craven. Um, we always feel like, oh, well, like is there a fun way to do Craven? So that's always kicked around. I mean, there was a version of Far From Home where we had had Craven. There was a version of Far From Home like early on where even though it was in Europe. It lasted for a while where even when he, like, at a certain point, Mysterio, as the villain, like, kicks Peter out into, like, Siberia and the cold to die and to be hunted down by Craven. I mean, it was always just always like a fun character where I was like, oh, how do we how do we use this guy? Maybe he's not the main character, but maybe to use him in the world as a hired gun by someone. It's just always been, you know, he's just a fun character that would be fun if someone could crack him. But also, I you know, then I then Sony, I believe, is making a standalone Craven. So yes, I, that we hear. that went out the window um, when as one of the characters that we wanted to use this time around, which I, was news to us because we didn't really know that that was really off the table. We always just kept on going back to like, well, and we'll use Craven somehow, and we're gonna have like you know some big fun sequence where some badass Russian assassin is trying to kill this kid and he's really good at hunting humans. Um, and even with humans with, uh, with spider powers and it just didn't happen. Then even in the multiverse version, we had a version that had Craven early on, uh, is just sort of a fun, uh, standalone moment. Um, but that was a different layout of this story. Where we were, yeah. that was the kitchen sink. I mean, there was a kitchen sink of the mold. Once, once we were hitting roadblocks with the story, different, you know, different, different story paths that we went down before it became what it is. We were hitting certain roadblocks for various reasons, and then Kevin was like, "Ah, remember that tag idea with the sinister? Like, why? Like, let's just do that. Let's have that be the whole movie." And well, I, that was like the big aha, which is always great when it's Kevin, because Kevin not kissing ass, it's just true. Kevin always has the best ideas. And it's always he's always following 
what would excite him as a viewer, which is why he's so good at what he does is he is the biggest fan of all this stuff and he just wants to see what's cool. He's never just trying to cynically connect dots. It's always, oh, this is a cool idea. Let's chase this idea. Well, I mean, when when you're sitting down there trying trying to break the story, like how many different paths are you going down? Are you just like, do you just have a whiteboard that's like, we're going to do this, this, and this, or this, this, and this, and then Kevin Feige comes in and says, no, we're not doing that. Uh, yes, maybe we could do that. Like, how does that, how, what, has, what does that process actually we, look we like? We sit in the, like, you know, I mean, there's different rooms at Marvel, different themed rooms, you know, uh, like with really get awesome. wanted, like coming in and out to make sure that you're not leaving with any state secrets. They, they're on a tight ship there. I'll tell you that much. There, I mean, yeah, no, it's like, oh, I'm going to go to that other kitchenette because they actually have better stuff. And then your security card just won't get you over there. There are layers of security there for good reason. They want to keep out fat ass writers like myself from stealing all the good stuff. Uh, but like, you know, there's a, there's but what I was going to say, there are different meeting rooms and, you know, they have these awesome murals outside and we would usually sit in the Avengers one and, you know, it would be Amy Pascal and Rachel O'Connor and John Watts and Eric Summers and various awesome assistants or, you know, associate producers like Chris Bongiorno. And, and, uh, anyway, we would just kick around a bunch of ideas and read comic books and try to figure out what would be the best story that we'd be most excited to tell knowing that there's just an amazing canon, but also that there's an organic story that's already happening with them that we want to stay true to, but, but early, pretty early on, it was we, we just knew that we were stuck with the fallout from okay, his identity's been blown. What do we do with that? Does he have to go somewhere else to school? Does he actually have to go off planet to school? Um, you laugh. <laughs> <laughs> These were explored. No, we we actually came up with like you know all of them like cool weird stories. And then for various reasons, we, uh, you know, came to this one that was sort of dangling at the end of the story for this one. And I think it was the most alluring one that, but also so shocking. We're like, well, can we do that? Because if we do this, that's obviously a huge logistical actor thing where you're, you're not just like, Oh, let's do Craven. And then you shoot for the moon and go, Oh, what if it's Tom Cruise or Brad Pitt? This is, Oh, can we get Alfred Molina and Willem Dafoe? And can we get all yeah. the people from these old movies? Can we get Toby and Andrew? Those were all these crazy things. Um, but once we started really exploring this idea, the calls went out. And we just started hearing that this wish wasn't so crazy that we could actually, there was enthusiasm. Hmm. Well, that's, I mean, that's, that's always good to hear that it's not just, you know, showing up with a dump truck of cash. It's showing up with a dump truck of cash and they want to do I it. I think it's, Alfred Molina made that joke, like in one of the interviews. So I'm sure he was like, oh, you're going to like, sure, this sounds like fun. <laughs> but even he on set, it was like, I, I got to hang out with him a couple of times. Um, and was he telling the John Gilgood? He told me the John Gilgood story that uh, you do plays. Oh, God, I'm going to ruin this. Uh, <laughs> I should have studied this up. 
I should have studied all my memoir, my all, all the diaries I wrote um, on set when I wasn't writing this. He said, what is it? it, it there's a famous quote that I'm going to butcher that is to the point of like, you do theater for yourself. You do movies for fame. You do TV for the money. I think in this one, I think it was though, it was, oh yeah, this is a, this, I mean, I think he openly said like, oh yeah, the money. Yeah, that sounds great. But he, yeah. obviously he had a great time and he's so professional and awesome. And uh, I think I told you one day I walked on set and it was uh, it was like, you know, you come in from outside and I've been up all night writing and and it's dark everywhere. And we were shooting Doctor Strange, the crypt, one of the crypt sequences that had Auk in it. And but it's so dark and your eyes are adjusting. And I just see this really tall figure across the stage go Chris Chris <laughs> I'm like no as even at this point no one knows my name I'm just like we're that weird schlubby guy just walking the writer laptop looking stressed and it was uh Alfred Molina and he's coming he has a little he's coming out of his tent uh makeup tent right there on set He's like, I, I listened to the podcast. I listened to that podcast with you, the bulwark. I listened. I'm like, really? <laughs> couldn't believe it. I didn't know anyone knew Alfred Molina. I couldn't believe not only that he knew my name, which <laughs> honestly was shocking, but that he knew of the bulwark podcast. Well, look, the Bulwark goes to Hollywood. Many powerful and influential listeners like Alfred Molina. We'll we'll get him on the show. When he was days. looking, he was looking down. He somehow stumbled upon the the Bulwark. He like the like, Bulwark goes to Hollywood, and then he somehow recognized my name. And uh, anyway, he was saying how that's I, great. Yeah, no, that's great. great. Hey, all right, there you go. Good for him. So, what what was it? What was it actually like working on set during this time? Because this is like this is probably the biggest movie or one of the biggest movies to be shooting in the, like kind of in the, the height of the COVID protocols and all that before, before it was shooting before vaccines, you know, it, there was testing every day. Like, what is it like being on set in a, in a situation like that? They did an incredible job. Uh, they did an incredible job. I mean, we were getting, t- it's, it, was, it sucked. It was brutal. It was, it was really hard. I mean, I mean, there were, you know, coming through the whole, all of it, trying to figure out this script and the story and whether this thing was going to work. And wh- and then, you know, we had to push, we were originally supposed to start shooting, I think in June, we had to push it to November. It was, it was tough. I mean, it was amazing though, that we didn't have, we never had to shut down production except for, I think one yeah. day during this entire thing with 300 plus people yeah. every day, Everyone was getting tested, you know, depending on your tier, whatever, you know, whatever pod you were in. I was in the blue pod, which I think was because, oh, I was like, you know, so I meant I was in the pod with the director and I think even the actors because I would have to interact with them. Then there was like a yellow pod if you didn't have a lot of directing contact with them. But like there were separate lights that were like the green light. I'm sorry, the blue light was this is for blue pod people yellow for yellow pod people. I mean, it was, there was so much protocol going on that was bananas just to make sure that everyone stayed safe and no one and nothing shut down this crazy production. Mm-hmm. You yeah. moved it. You I moved mean, it too crazy. happy. I, I can't believe there was only, you know, the, such a, such yeah. a brief shutdown. I, like the, the, I mean, I think it was literally, okay. there was a rehearsal with camera crew 
and the actors. And I didn't go that day because I remember I didn't go because I was feeling feverish. And I had, it was happening to me a couple of times. I'm like, I hey, shouldn't right. go in. And I was maybe just fighting off something that was non-COVID. I would have to have uh, the med, uh, you know, the health, you know, like the head health guy come to my apartment and, you know, swab me, do a rush test because I couldn't go. I didn't want, you know, obviously I couldn't, if you yeah. were feeling feverish at all, had any kind of symptoms, you had to stay away from set. But it was that day that they did a rehearsal, I'm trying to remember what scene, that then afterward, I think someone like on camera, like tested positive and then they had to, every, they had to shut down for one day and, you know, test everybody. But like, <laughs> it was it was funny because, you know, Atlanta is a big production town and I would rarely go out. I had my bachelor apartment okay. which is bummer because it's usually fun to go to atlanta when you're on you know even if you're working hard you get to go stay in a hotel and go out to dinner with people it was not it was just like go live in your uh you know apartment right and then show up at set again but i, I occasionally i would go out and i would pick up food and i would run into guys yeah. i knew from like previous productions i'd worked on there uh and some of them like their shows had been shut down for weeks because of COVID outbreaks. And it really is a testament to, um, you know, the producers and Sony and Marvel, Joanne, the line, you know, like one of the, one of the producers and line producer on this, who just, uh, they were so good about just keeping it on rails. And it was tough because, you know, there's just, you have people going home at night too. You know, it's not like everyone's like in a quarantine bubble or anything. You had people living who knows where, but everyone was really careful. And, and we were really lucky that we were not shut down. As you know, I mean, other big productions have shut down, not just the ones I'm telling you about of like, Oh, you know, smaller TV productions in town. Yeah. It's, it's great. I mean, if you guys lost just a day of rehearsal or shooting or whatever, that's, that's amazing. That's, that's really, that's really fantastic. Because this is like the business now. This is the business of Hollywood is like this, this, you know, kind of never ending COVID protocol stuff. But it is, but it's important for you to be on set though, right? Because I mean, you're, you're there, you're writing alts, you're, you know, trying to get from scene to scene and, and work through what everyone's doing. What was it? What was it like, you know? Yeah. I mean, there's, there was always about five different writing things going on. I mean, there was the day's work, then there was the week's work, then there was the alts, uh, like, oh, what are some different lines, How you know, which are just like joke lines or, oh, we should save ourselves, you know, things are changing, we should get this just in case, maybe some story things or what have you, or then there was bigger, like, oh, the rest of act two, like what, like reworking all that, and then you know, then act three, there were giant, giant big picture stuff that we were working on at the same time. It was changing constantly as we were also shooting scenes. So it was, yeah. you're dealing with the day, the micro of the day, the slightly bigger micro of that week's work, and then just big picture plotting stuff, just like making, making sure the plot is working. And then so we would, you know, it would be these different war campaign rooms like you'd be every day like okay so what are we doing with like tomorrow today's scenes how are we with tomorrow's scenes what how are we with alts if we need alts also what the fuck are we doing with act two are we moving the whole thing to this new location we moved the we made a big move in the middle of production of where the whole 
curing of the villains took place. Um, mm-hmm. You moved well, it. You moved it too happy. Not built no. to be the location it turned out to be. Yeah, it was not supposed to be Happy's apartment. That changed okay. mid-production, and that was a big deal because Happy's apartment was only built for some fun stuff in Act One. This is a scoop. I don't think we've talked about this with anyone. Maybe someone else. Hey, all right. Middle of like shooting, right? I remember it was like in November, right when we started. We'd moved everything to Happy's apartment, and it had to be almost re- had to be reconfigured so we could actually have you know tear down walls and flames and all that stuff because it was only built for the fun and game stuff of Act One. Because originally yeah. we were trying to do that like at a storage facility. It ch- that location changed a few times. Why did it change? Like what happens during the shooting that you guys are like, oh, we have to move it to Happy's? It was originally at the school, then it became a. Manny Mo and Jax <laughs> for various <laughs> character reasons. And then that character was no longer in the movie. Okay. And then it became a storage facility. And it still just felt like it was a little random that it was like this storage facility. So then it became organically happy's condo which we set up in the movie earlier and then we set up this you know different magic box the fabricator which you know stark tech uh magic box (laughs) as opposed to strange's magic box but yeah you know it's like it's you know a lot of this is juggling goobers making sure there aren't too many goobers that's the tom rothman uh the official term yeah which made it way into into the spider-verse uh goobers (laughs) um but we, you know, it's always like, like, how many goobers can this story hold up? And so the story shifted. The curing took place originally in, one, in our very first draft in the school early on. So it was an act two scene. And then it shifted to Manny Moan Jacks. And then it shifted to a storage facility. And then... I'm sorry, I know I'm talking in circles, but now I actually haven't thought about this in so long. Yeah, and then it became like, oh no, that's the place to do it. But obviously that caused then a huge nightmare for production and production designers and our line producer going, this was not built to have a giant fight sequence here. What are you talking about? But that's how great, you know, uh, these crews are and these people are and that was not meant to hold that happy's condo was not meant to hold all of the action that it did. And they, you know, everything sort of had to be sort of torn down and rebuilt, um, in its own way. Uh, but that's just one of the things that you deal with because we were still trying to find the story as we were writing, as we were making the movie. Mm. When you're on Twitter, when you're foolishly on Twitter, when you have made the mistake of going on social media and looking at some of the what people are saying about No Way Home, do you ever feel the need to tell them, well, actually, this is what was this is what we were trying to do. And this is what ended up happening. Stop picking holes in this because uh, you weren't there. You don't know. I try not to answer any of those because I just feel like because a lot of them like I get tagged with Kevin and John Watts and I'm like. Well, they're certainly not answering this. So I'm not, I don't feel it's my place. I, if someone else wants to, like through normal channels, I always feel like somehow I'm going to screw something up by saying something I'm not supposed to say. And who knows, like maybe that whole thing about, oh no, it was, it was a, you know, a 
auto repair yard first and then a storage unit. I think that's kind of cool. I think I think if people I think in this day and age it seems like everybody likes to know how the sausage is made. As long as it doesn't ruin the magic of it. But I feel like everyone knows all the behind the scenes stuff at this point. My thing is I if I I feel like things I should steer clear of are things that could be used in the future that I'm like, oh, that's a cool idea that even if it's not us, that we had enough fun with that it feels like that's a ripe area and I wouldn't want I wouldn't want to step on that and go, oh, we came up with this whole thing. Mentioning Craven, I just feel like that's already in the air. I feel like everyone's always like, where's Craven? And we're like, ah, oh, we tried. Yeah. We had this idea. And then now they're doing something else yeah. with them. But it's always walking that line because I find this stuff is interesting to me, kind of doing the autopsy of how did we get here? Because it was a long journey. And obviously, there are people who are interested in that stuff. I would also, yeah, just like to preserve the fun stuff that – Oh, they'll use that. They'll be like the mine car scene and Raiders in the original draft where they're like, oh, they didn't fed at the end. There was no room for that. Why are we still, why are we now after all that, after the wrath of God, we're like grabbing the Ark and getting a mine <laughs> car chase, but then they use it in uh, Temple. Yeah. 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 Um, well, you are, you're, you're, you're catching up on Lawrence Kasdan on the domestic box office total list. So, you know, it's, it's, important to i i can see i can see why you'd want to keep that to yourself Good so have, i have goals when, when i i i keep asking about shooting stuff because this is a business of hollywood podcast i do like to talk about the business side of things and the the way marvel and the way sony has shot these with marvel is very interesting how they build in essentially time not not for reshoots but like for re like entire re redoings like the, the additional the adding in it's just it's, it's additional yeah. photography it's part of what it there's always this shame in the past about like uh, reshoots and it's always like grumbled, but particularly since so many of these movies are like fully animated anyways, like, or like 60% of it is animated. Why not treat it like Pixar, like treats their animated films where you throw everything up, you get it all and then go, Oh, we gotta, we have to change stuff. I mean, you look at the Incredibles. I mean, that thing went through like seven animatics before it started being animated or whatever number of animatics. Yeah. It's like, I think as so many of the tools have become these magical devices that you can visualize so many parts of the movie without actually shooting it yet. You know, we pre this so many of these things, you get to do some big swings and why not know that like at a certain point, oh, some of those swings just don't work. Yeah. We tried yeah. and you know what? There's a you know, it's it's if you could just see it as part of the larger creation process where you can take some big swings, you can try some things, but it's like editing. You can also try editing stuff, but why, you know, I mean how how different is that from oh well, production ended here and if you have to go back to reshoots and you're a bad boy i don't know yeah, yeah. i mean look at george lucas i mean he's still fixing his movies yeah well but this is what i mean though is that like you know marvel again has like just kind of a whole different mindset on this has has a very has a has its own thing and i think it has kind of reconditioned people to understand how this sort of stuff works like when you all right so so you guys do the first round of filming principal photography and all that. Uh, and they put together uh, a cut of the movie and decide what works and what doesn't. Do they then come to you and say, Hey, we need 
a new second half of act two, like, or, or we need, we need a new, we need like new lines for the scene in the, in the crypt area where they're, they're joking around with each other. How does that work on your end? Well, I mean, we're hired at this point, all services, you know, and we, so, cause we've been with them. We, you know, they knew it was like, and we know how this goes is that they're going to need us even after wrap date, March 13th, you know, 2021, there's going to be stuff. Even then, we were knowing like, oh, we couldn't get Benedict for everything that we wanted. So we're going to need to either shoot him on set of Doctor Strange doing stuff. We just know that there's going to be like gaps. We just know there's going to be certain gaps. But also, we all, that was the, I mean, the, the amazing thing with all these producers was juggling all of these different actors, too. And knowing that certain ones we just weren't going to be able to get again, you know? Um, so... Uh, but we do know that, particularly on this one, we were really, um, the story was evolving a lot as we went along, that there would probably be certain things that we would have to pick up and clarify as we, as we went along. You know, particularly there were certain disagreements. I mean, it was, so much of this came down to two of the goobers, which was, what does the spell do and what does the box do? And that was a long, I mean, that was an ongoing conversation to the point where, you know, like one of those war campaigns in like November, I remember writing a document like for two days that was just going over. This is what the spell does. This is what the box does. This is this is my pitch of what we should have them do so that they're not doing too many things because that can be overwhelming um, and confusing and et cetera. It's. But we knew, you know, some of that language we're probably still going to have to refine in additional photography. Um, we're probably going to have to refine just there was there was definitely some stuff that was like box and spell related in terms of that was that we knew were like these really important threads, bookends that we knew that we would just that were probably going to be a discussion and an argument constantly. And how do we do those things without just having, you know, having them just the dotting of our eyes and the crossing of our T's just didn't get away in the way of the fun of the movie, that it was enough of, okay, now I get the premise. Oh, now I get the wrap up. But those were still things. I mean, we were reshooting things uh, in November. We, we reshot like a scene in November, like, a you know, one day, but it was, we moved the cemetery scene to, it was originally before, the donut shop scene, we shot a new version of that with Happy and Tom, Happy and Peter, after. We placed it after the donut shop scene. So, because it could be, it served two purposes. It was a little bit of a coda coming out of the donut shop scene of where is his head now in terms of how he's living his life. But also, I people felt like we needed to at least give some lip service towards how does the spell work in terms of the people who knew Peter? How do they, how do they still know of May? How do they know of Spider-Man? Do they know of Peter Parker and Spider-Man, but as separate people? So that was, that was sort of part of that scene, which I think though also serves as uh, a crystallization of, of Peter's choice and sacrifice uh, after the donut shop scene to explain that he really does think he's carrying this torch forward for May, but also it serves the purpose for happy to say, how do you know May? How did you know her? Mm -hmm. Through Spider-Man, hopefully that's enough. 
God knows we went down. It was a whole can of worms because we felt like, oh, if we did a whole thing where we're showing that pictures have disappeared and videos and anyway, it just felt like "Ah, we really want to get into that nitty gritty at this point in the movie. I mean, it already is like a series of like epilogues. I mean, part of the reason why we came up with the donut shop, well, part of that came out of that donut shop scene was we were feeling like, because originally it was, oh, I'm never going to see you again. He says goodbye in the climax without the hope of, I'm going to come tell you. I'm going to come find you and I'm going to tell you. And we and I kept on feeling like, well, then we're just going to have all these scenes where the movie's ended. What is, what are we, it's going to feel like so such declining action at this point. Um, so then we came up with the idea, like that having can wait moment where, which was already floated. I mean, that was something that Amy had said before. And we'd all thought about like Peter running into his love, but his love not recognizing him and him then making, you know, but him making that choice in the moment of not telling her was sort of born out of that feeling like we can't, we're going to go into that scene. What? He's just going to be spying on them and then nothing happens in that scene. That's why we moved it. So it was a choice there. He makes the promise uh, during it because he's still giving this sort of has this false hope that I can have everything I want. Just like in the beginning of the movie, I want everything. I want it to be perfect. And then it's in that moment when he sees them, their lives have moved on. They're getting what they want. MJ has a cut on her head, which reminds him that she almost died at, at you know, because of him. Um, that he makes his final sacrifice and his final choice is like, I can't, I'm not going to ask for everything I want anymore. I can't, I got to move on alone. That was a long way of, uh, yeah. But I was just saying like story necessity, you start realizing these things. You, it's not all planned out. You, know, you, you do your best as you're making it, but at a certain point, the train leaves the station and you were just trying to put tracks down and make it all make sense at the end. And those like, you know, a little bit of additional photography can be like you doing a proofread at the end, you know, of like going, yeah. okay, let's proof the movie. Is it working? And if it isn't, let's edit some of these things. But our editing tools now involve like, oh yeah, we can get this actor and, or we can digitally change this. And it's just yeah. part of your toolbox. Yeah. Like Tom Holland pulls down the green screen in his uh, bathroom and stands in front of it, shoots like three lines. You guys insert it in, right? That's how all this works. That's my understanding. <laughs> exactly. That, no, but a lot of the days, like we're down in Manhattan Beach and it's like, it's green screen city. A lot of it. It's just, okay. Yeah. But luckily you have a lot of focused minds, you know, um, uh, our incredible editors and uh, Jeff and Lee and, and John, who's living with this every day. Uh, you know, it's just in the VFX and it all comes together with these really talented people and they're thinking about everything and it all, uh, trying to keep your eye on the right ball is always important. Everyone has a different ball to, you know, watch and, you know, story ball is that's that's the one ball that we have to that that we're asked to just sort of keep an eye on. And everyone else is, too. But it's when there's a madness of a lot of different balls going on when there's 350 people, you know, it's all, it's, <laughs> yeah. you know, it's, yeah. it's all big and as crazy as you would imagine. Yeah. 
I am reading right now Audienceology, How Moviegoers Shape the Films We Love right. uh, by Kevin Getz. You, uh, yeah, spoiler, Debra, you, you actually suggested I, I give this a read. Mm-hmm. It was interesting because uh, on the inside of the book, there's a there, there are blurbs from uh, Amy Pascal, who's the producer on all these movies, and Tom Rothman, who's the head of Sony Studios. Uh, and I'm curious, from your perspective, uh, how... How useful are these test screenings in terms of helping you to figure out what the audience is getting and what they're not getting, what needs to be, you know, kind of explained a little more and what can be elided? They seem to be extremely helpful. They wouldn't do them. Um, I think we did, I don't know, three or four called friends and family screenings. And, you know, it's people who they try or at least somehow within the, you know, Disney family, extended family. And... I think I went to, you know, all, I, how many how many there were. I went to them and it was really enlightening to see really smart people respond right after the fact of what they just watched, particularly since we, there were a lot of threads in this one. You know, it was always this thing from the very beginning. It was uh, trying to make sure that it didn't feel so overstuffed that you couldn't track the story in it. And there were a lot of big arcs and little arcs to follow. And people were really smart. Like they were, you know, if they were confused about something, they would mention it and they, they would, they would, you know, nitpick in a good way about things that were confusing. And it really helped us refine uh, things that we needed to address. Um, It was just like really, you know, it was like having sharp people like, you know, read drafts of your work. Because it is, yeah. a lot of this stuff is in flux as you go along, you know, through editing. And a lot of this stuff is just not the way, you know, you're making this stuff up, like, digitally as you're going along. I mean, you have incredible artists who are crafting these things. And you can only, you know, there are things you can change, the things you can ADR. But, you know, is why is what? Uh you know, he would make this joke about like, we can't, you know, like, okay, yeah. Then in this scene, we'll just have a VO over the feast van saying, wait, why are we driving here again? And like, you can't do, you, you never want to be in that position where everything is like fixed by a bad VO. And yeah. uh, why you try to get it the first time, but sometimes you are able to pick up some stuff. Um, anyway, you just don't want people to see those seams. We've all seen those clunky seams that just, People sure. didn't have additional photography when when they're like, oh, so what were you saying again before we got uh, to the I, store? Oh. <laughs> why are so we having this conversation just right now on <laughs> a long shot of the car? It's always the worst. And we all notice it. We all see it. Like, oh, man, they were doing their best yeah. with what they had. If you can't say, don't. But was there anything from the test screenings that uh, that that audiences picked up on that you can you can tell us here that uh, they they help fix in the final? I mean, maybe something like you know, if once you're sitting there with them, they start you know, like because I think from from my experience with this, there was resounding a lot of affection for the movie, even like you know, early like from the first test screening. I think though people sit there long enough, they start asking those questions like, wait, so what did that mean that they don't remember Peter? I think that was, I think then redoing the cemetery scenes. So we address that a little where, uh, with, with the new version and placing it where we do, I think that was something where like, okay, that probably then will help 
curb some of those stories because we don't want to get into the nitty gritty of what happened to everyone, the world's memories of Peter, does that include video and all that kind of stuff. But um, I think that was one issue. I think, you know, just clarifying the spell, clarifying the box. It really is those kind of like, those kind of like plot points that people get a little tripped up on because they were those goobers that can be a little sticky. They can be sticky with yeah. goobers. Because yeah. you just don't want to think about them. You know, I mean, there are like, you know, what, you know obviously they're called MacGuffins. They're those, that's people that, that Hitchcock called them. It's those things that you don't want to think about too much. Right. If you think about them too much, then they, then they dispel the magic of what movies are. But they can't be so uh, unformed that you feel like, ah, you lazy asshole. Like, yeah, sure. like come on. Sure. So we, we try to at least give the illusion that we've done a little bit of our job. That we're <laughs> like, look, I don't want it to. No, 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 we never want to feel like this stuff is lazy. But sometimes when you try to overexplain things and you're like, Wow, they're really trying to explain something. Yeah, you're right. That is a problem. It's always that line <laughs> because there's always a yeah. little element of pixie dust that you want to just kind of go, let's just keep moving. Can we just like keep keep getting to the fun stuff? Because you probably pick apart a lot of things that you don't want to pick apart too hard. Yeah. Okay. So movie movie comes out, big, big success, A plus cinema scores, audiences love it, critics uh praise it to the heavens. Very exciting for you. How does it feel to be the savior of the theatrical experience? How does it how does it feel to save movie theaters? Uh, <laughs> these holes in my hand ever gonna? <laughs> uh, look, I mean, it's Ke- I mean Kevin, Amy, Tom Rothman, Watts, like the star. I mean, it really is. It's great. I don't know if you know this, but theaters have been safe for a long time, Sonny. Mm. Movie theaters. theaters are very safe. Safest, one of the safest indoor activities a person can partake in. Uh, movie theater. They, I mean, it's a bummer. Like that, the that the lockdowns, the pandemic have escalated uh, the decline of so many things. Besides our children's mental health, uh, <laughs> it it's tough because, like, I you know. I, it's very easy to say I have a big screen and I have a great sound bar, but you go watch something like Dune in IMAX and it's just a totally different experience. There's no way that can compare to sitting on your couch, uh, no matter how great of a screening room you have. It's just not the same. Also, because I think one of the main things is, and maybe you said this, it's a liberating lack of control. Like everything, we're control. We've, we're controlling so much, but it's something so nice to know. If you have to get up and go to the bathroom, guess what? You're going to miss it. This thing is not stopping for you because when you stop it, then you get in a conversation. Then you're checking your email. Then you're checking one twi- tweet. All those things are so disruptive to a. So as much as I like, even like the communal experience of seeing something in a theater, and nothing is going to like match the sound. Listening to the sound design in IMAX as opposed to how great your sound system is when you're talking about like dune there's no way like the rumbling that it, you were feeling it's just even like and i went to imax uh, for no way home screening it's just like your seats are rumbling it's such a different it's so great i would hope that people recognize that and they start going back to the theater and realizing it is a safe place to go to and 
it's really sad to me to see that you have all these other movies that are out right now and people are still obviously particularly like demographics of certain movies that just are not going because they're afraid to go to the theater and they sh- this it's it's a it's real it's really sad because this thing isn't that old this art form isn't that old and it's just not the same to watch a movie at home where you can pause it anytime you want or be at a theater and be experiencing it with a bunch of strangers. It's just two different things and they're much more enjoyable. Uh, One is much more enjoyable than the other to me. Yeah. Well, that was everything I wanted to ask. As you know, I always like to end the show by asking if there's anything I should have asked. What, what should the people know about Spider-Man No Way Home or uh, the art of screenwriting in general, (laughs) art of filmmaking? (laughs) We covered it all, I think. What should, what should people what should people know? What do we, what 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 did I not honestly? Ask? It's just I've been going to the theater again, and I wasn't I wasn't going for a while just because I was so busy. I mean, this movie you know this, you know is really has been two and a half years of my life, but it's just so nice to go to the movies again, and um, and I hope it continues to go, and this isn't like a last gasp because it really is. Uh, I don't know I didn't want to get into this because I, I mean, God knows I watched some of my favorite movies for the first time on TV. And I know that's an argument. It's just, but you can't forget. At least I can't, you know, I mean, experiences like watching Raiders of Lost Ark at the Mian National in Westwood as a kid, Star Wars at the Avco across the street, aliens in the theater. These are just such unbelievable experiences that I just don't know if, Hey, that thing dropped this morning and let's watch it on TV or your laptop. It's just not the same. It's just not the same. And I would just, I, I know I sound like an old man shouting at clouds at this point, but it really is something that I hope that we're all able to keep on doing for a while um, because it really is such a more enriching experience to me than turning on, uh, a movie because just because it dropped on streaming uh well from your from your lips to god's ears uh thank you very much chris mckenna uh for being on the show again the 12th highest grossing writer of all time at the domestic box office i just want hey, what, to again? One more, one more time 13 he's wow. right behind you he's, he's wow. you're just as as you you will continue to maintain the same gap until he writes igor too yeah yeah that's uh, <laughs> That's that's gonna be. What is he writing? Yeah, what's that, that guy working on? Him? Uh, I haven't I haven't heard from him in a couple hours. <laughs> All right. Uh, well, thanks for being on the show. Uh, my name is Sonny Bunch, culture editor at Bulwark. I will be back next week with another episode. See you guys then. Bye.